Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Sloppy Lab. I am JT Russell, and uh, with me tonight is uh, Quick Draw three, four, five, six, seven. Oh, uh, no, I didn't mean six. Uh, quick, quick, no, Quick Draw. Sorry, come, come back. Uh, uh, I don't know if he's. I don't know if he's coming back, guys. Uh, well, it's a sure good thing that I have uh, that I have the wonderful Murph slash Fudgenator here with me tonight to cover for my saltily departed co-host. <laughs> How's it going, Murph? It's going well. It's it is you know a slip of the tongue. Hopefully, Quick Draw recovers and is able to join for next week. If they've uh, you know if you two have made up, but I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me on. Absolute pleasure. And uh, yeah, Quickdraw does not abide those six as well. But we are super happy to have you here. Some sloppy love, some swindle love. Before we get into it, you know, why don't you tell some of the folks who are listening for the the one person listening who <laughs> knows who we are but doesn't know who you are, and that's my mom, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> can you <laughs> yeah. tell her, you know, who you are, where we can find you on the uh, on the internet, and what's your jam in the KeyForge scene. Yes, well, well, JT's mom <laughs> and ST Russell's mom as well. I am Murph, otherwise known as Fudgenator. My Fudgenator is my handle on Twitch as well as on YouTube. You just search those in. You should find me. It's a blue logo with chameleons on it. I just made that up. There's no significance to that logo at all. But you can find me there. I do mostly competitive gameplay. It's mostly gameplay videos. I stream as much Keyforge gameplay as I do, and I host the swindle dust chronicles with karen and an occasional co-host recently zeromis and i who's also who's also a teammate have been doing matchup watches on the nordic keyforge league for this season uh season 20 and that's been that's been a blast doing those so yeah give me a follow subscribe on the twitch and hopefully i can see you next time i go live i have been absolutely enjoying your nkfl matches i will talk about one of the decks in particular tonight and there was a very memorable moment we were just discussing before we went on yeah folks folks haven't checked out uh, Murph's channel, do so please. There's some great stuff there. And I also have to give a whole lot of love for you for um, organizing and carrying the torch on the Kagi League. So for folks who don't know, Murph's running the show on the Kagi scene, Keyforge as Garfield intended. It's an adaptive best of three league. And we just wrapped up season number 7.0. That's right. Of which you were an honorary champion. If we had stopped the count at the right time, <laughs> I could have walked away with the title. <laughs> you drew first blood and, uh, you know, you, you called for the, the bell to be sounded. And uh, you are up there alongside Ashitaka as champion of Kagi 7.0. I hope, I hope Ashitaka doesn't mind sharing the title. <laughs> no, has no choice. And our co-host, who was in absentia this evening, who were missing Quick Draw, we have to say, was also a finalist for Kagi 7.0. They deserve lots of props. We had a couple other sloppy lab workers in the top cut too. Uh, I want to make sure I don't miss anybody, but Not Tonight was a semi-finalist. Yeah, so it was, I can rattle them off for you if you like. Oh, go for it. If you got it handy. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, so for the sloppy lab works, we had Not Tonight, JDG, and Quick Draw. Uh, unfortunately, JAG and Quickdraw got matched in the quarterfinals. And Quickdraw now, Quickdraw is being, it was a part of the only two ones in the Kagi Top Cup. It was a two-one versus JDG. Quickdraw committed a little bit of civil war and you know murdered JDG and to move on. A little infighting, as it were. Infighting, as yeah, exactly. Not tonight. Lost, unfortunately, in the semifinals to their arch nemesis to their Kagi arch nemesis Ashitaka in perhaps a unfortunate but very rector showing. I know we'll get into some adaptive discussions here too, but uh, it's an interesting one. There were a lot of there were a lot of two O games, two uh, O results in the Kagi top cut, Kagi top cut first round. Right? There was only would you say there was only one two one result, one or two? There's two. There's two two one results. 
especially at this level of competition, as you were saying, kind of before we got on, you know, these are all these are all veterans of the format, veterans of the league. There's absolutely no shame in a two-zero result. I mean, you look at a two-zero result, and even Garfield at one point describing how you could kind of balance a Keyforge matchup said, you know, well, even if it's perfectly balanced, it's going to go two-zero half the time. You know, so you got to play a handful of these, and that's another reason why I also say, uh, you know, spiking an event, spiking one one league is great, but I really give a lot of props to the folks who are consistently making the top cuts and making it to the top tables. Um, so yeah, you look at, you know, Ashitaka who's on their, what, their third, their third final showing. And Ashitaka, I think first joined the league in season three. I could be wrong about that, but I think they first joined the league in season three. And since then they have been a part of every, okay. No, so they're, so they're season three, season six, and season seven. They are part of the top cut. So three, appearances which is very impressive quick draw also no stranger to the top cuts not tonight no stranger to the top cuts and oh i have to give a plug to uh to zock and dataforge stream who actually covered the finals game along with uh zach armstrong definitely also check out zock's channel dataforge stream twitch.tv slash dataforge stream and and check that out great match yeah no that was uh the final the finals was phenomenal ashitaka and quick draw did not disappoint that was three very entertaining games, and the last game is is a nail biter. Well, I don't want to give too many spoilers. No spoilers. Go check out the game. Go watch the game. There was some good drama. It came down to the wire. It was super exciting. I mean, obviously, we can spoil the winner, Ashutaka won, but the culmination of the game was just kind of a beautiful thing and super well played on both sides. There was a lot of very small important decision points and i think it was you know i know quick draw is saying that you know there's some there's some moments where quick draw and i know the, the, the interviews afterwards is also was also quite well done definitely small decision points and very well played from both players i've been really enjoying the post-game interviews so that's been a great feature i hope i hope that gets kept up but so i don't know props props to you props to zach props to orion and zach armstrong who did a lot of heavy lifting as well for some of the streaming of the topic of games at least from what i what i caught hope that keeps up because it's been really great addition and i think the format you know deserves to be trumpeted yeah i mean it was definitely my goal um i tried to do it a little bit last season you know with me taking over one of my goals is to have it be a bit of a you know the top cut to be a bit of a spectacle be a bit of a thing that people who are you know because unfortunately there's lots of great players not all of them make it to the top cut i know as myself as a player i love even if i don't make it getting to follow along with what's happening during the downtime of the of the league mm-hmm. so picking a player rooting for them seeing how it's going all i did was organize was organizing and scheduling the streamers and everyone who's who helped and if someone who's listening to this is interested in casting and streaming for next kagi please reach out to me on discord murph hashtag a591 is that but you can reach out to me we can have a conversation and you know maybe you can be part of the team for next week because uh, what i'm looking for is just people to give this wonderful format and these great players some exposure well the the energy and enthusiasm that's been going into it is is really appreciated uh, and i'd love to see it and speaking of speaking of kagi 8.0 and wait whoa, whoa, whoa. we always do a little bit of pronunciation on this show do you say kagi or kagi 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 and yeah I'm, know... I'm canadian so we are our a's are typically hard <laughs> kagi kagi okay yeah, so it's pasta it's not pasta it's pasta pasta do you know how they decided how to spell canada yeah well it's a, it's an algonquin word so it's an, it's an indigenous word that means big village no 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 they put a bunch of consonants in a bag and then they pulled them out oh, one at a time yes. and they said c-a n-a d-a <laughs> oh, you got me i was a that's, 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 that's got a classic but it got me nice nice cool i'm looking forward to uh, 8.0 
what are the what are the, the dot the dot numbers? Is there going to be like is there maybe like an eight point five at some point or did you not get any invites to those? This is awkward. This is really yeah, awkward. That's, that's a little awkward. <laughs> we'll edit this part out. Yeah, I'm gonna edit this out. This out for sure. Yeah, yeah we'll just, I'll sleep that under the rug. Cool. Uh, yeah. So when's 8.0? 8.0 is starting on June 4th. It's slated to start on June 4th. So the signups are now live. You can find the. I was just saying I should post this on Reddit as well. But I was just that you can find the sign-up form in almost all of the Discord announcement channels that I can find. Mm-hmm. Uh, specifically under the Sanctimonious Discord under hashtag Kagi. It has its own channel. It's going to be there in the pins. I've made an announcement. It's a Google form. You go in there. You sign up. The things I'm looking for really is just your Discord name. You need to join the Discord. Tell me what time zone you're in because I try and match people so it's fairly easy scheduling. Which actually is, which actually is an interesting a byproduct of that is we get regional... We're almost getting you know, regional competition, mm. international competition, mm-hmm. where it becomes like, you know, it's the North America versus Europe versus yep. the more Asiatic, Oceanic regions. So some regional disparity happening there, which I think is interesting. I always put in, you know, whatever time zone, for one, because I hopefully, hopefully it helps with, you know, pod creation, but also my, my schedule is weird. And I, I find that like the, the like central European time folks tend to be really easy for me to make games with for whatever reason. Same. The hardest people for me to schedule games with are the West Coast people. Pacific time. The worst. I'm looking at you in the chat, Pacific time. Worst. Yeah. <laughs> Pacific time is very <laughs> difficult. One of the hardest people I had to schedule a match with was um, Gorlami. Not oh, fault really? of their own. It just was like, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I can play around like, you know, 10 p.m. or 11 p.m. my time. And it's like, well, it's like 1 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m. for me. Yeah, it's it's tough because they're all getting off work or just wrapping up dinner or like putting kids to bed and you're like, yeah, that's midnight. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> and that makes that makes it tough too, because uh, I, I'm also playing in the ABR League, which I absolutely love. ABR League is awesome. I highly recommend it. It is Pacific time centric. So there is a mm-hmm. directive to be playing at Pacific friendly times and also to avoid uh, weekends if possible, right? So we do leave Saturdays as an option. We try not to schedule games on Sundays and we try to play at pacific friendly times so yeah there are some there's some kind of midnight games but it's a lot lot of fun tongue-in-cheek love you love you west coasters but your time zone's the worst (laughs) yeah it's it's, it is hard it's hard to it's genuinely difficult to schedule with them so you're on the other side of canada as jdg i am i know jdg is vancouver not vancouver he's in bc i should bc yep i don't know i don't know specifically where i just sent him some mail but uh, i don't know if he i don't know we won't we won't dox him i won't dox him i won't dox him (laughs) (laughs) cool well looking forward to kagi (laughs) 8.0 seeing some some love for our west coast folks in the chat we do love you too uh, <laughs> indeed, and yeah, make your way over to the ABR server if you're not there. I have an awful lot of show notes to put in already, but we'll we'll drop this on Reddit as well. I think uh, maybe if we can get some more exposure to the Kagi League, that'd be fun because it's a great a great format, especially if you're just getting into the game and find that you only have a handful of decks and are looking for a format that lets you compete at, at the highest levels or against players of the highest caliber, but without decks that are necessarily knocking over the the triple digits on the SAS scale. Yeah, and I think, you know, the nice thing about Adaptive is there's a, at the beginning of the league document that has information, more specific information about it. There is a deck, there's a quote from Richard Garfield that they like to take a deck and try and win with it rather than taking a deck that has the best chance of winning, which is the heart and soul of Adaptive in that every deck, every Keyforge deck is a viable Adaptive deck. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we might get into a little bit of like, you know, what makes a good one, but every deck in Keyforge is a good Adaptive deck because... All it really requires is that you enjoy playing it and you're familiar with it. 
And even you don't even need to be familiar with it. You can just bring it in and play it. It's also a great way to learn to learn new decks because you get to see yourself play it and see someone else play it. Yeah, totally. I I love watching, and I've gone on a bit of a journey on this on this topic. But I love and I now love watching other folks play my own decks. I think it's a great way to get insight into a deck. Aurora had a, had a nice post on timeshapers.com a week or two ago about, about the affinity that you might have for a specific deck. Yes, a good article. Good article. And I think the flip side of that is that sometimes we have a deck that we look at a certain way and it can be very revealing to see somebody take it for a spin differently, as it were. Yeah. Which is something that you you get the benefit of in an adaptive setting um, and can be hard to... hard to, hard hard but valuable lessons or information to glean playing a deck on your own. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I have personally have experienced that and I've learned some very valuable, very valuable lessons about my own decks, learning of seeing other people play them. Totally. And um, I'm, I may have one or two, one or two uh, specific examples uh, as we get along, but uh, I think maybe that's, huh. this is, this is what happens about quick draw. We, we fall apart. This is what happens. You leave the, the, <laughs> the, yeah, uh, we the, Comedic yeah, the, relief the in charge. Have off the bus already. <laughs> yeah. So today, twenty minutes in, we're talking about. Uh, uh, well, uh, this is a double-sided artifacts episode, and we have a DT aficionado, a lover of DT. And so we picked uh, with Murph a, a DT double-sided artifact, and that is dry the river. So that's going to be a point of focus, but also uh, you know dark tidings generally and how it fits in with adaptive so these are kind of all on theme and on topic and there's going to be a lot of interconnectivity between between those kind of themes mm-hmm. absolutely so um, uh, yeah no go ahead go ahead i was gonna say so why don't we why don't we go right to then like what what do you do you play in adaptive mostly like what's your go-to deck what did you play in kagi 7.0 or yeah yeah, so I mean, over the past few seasons, I didn't play last season, unfortunately, just because I was, right, um, right. um <laughs> I was, I wanted to focus on organizing it, so I didn't want to get caught up in playing as well and run out of time. The man so behind the curtain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but I did play this season, and I didn't play. I have a go-to adaptive deck. Um, on my channel, there's lots of of Kagi gameplay of me playing that adaptive deck. If you are curious, what that was called, Babatha Bright. Since then, I've sort of been trying out a bunch of trying out a bunch of things seeing like sometimes i just want to test a deck um, most recently i've been playing one of my fit well, playing my favorite deck and a deck that i'm very very familiar with which is the crude soothsayer judge so i played that actually the back sort of the back half of kagi so for played three games three matches with that i actually actually won all i think i won all three which was um maybe a promising start of judge's adaptive career as well mm-hmm. as his archon career yeah i mean i i like to play First and foremost, either AOA or DT in Adaptive. Any other set, I'm not. I'm. I'm probably not bringing any other set ever to Adaptive. Uh, bold words. Oh, uh, sets we know about now. Sets we know about now. That's true. <laughs> well, well, might change that. Grand Miners might change that. And whatever the next set after that is. But right now, I just I really love Dark Tidings and AOA, and I love what they bring to Adaptive as, as a space. Yeah. So I mean, dig into that a little bit, a little bit for me. What is it particularly about? those two sets that draws you to them for adaptive in particular the main things is that i think aoa dark tidings more has more of this than aoa does dark tidings interacts with interacts with with games and on different axes than other sets do and oftentimes mm-hmm. has because of its reliance on three card combos and sort of the smaller synergies within a deck the game plans are often a lot less tangible 
just looking at Archon list or picking it up for the first time. I find that with, I find that with AOA too. I, I find that you know like when I play AOA sealed or Dark Tiding sealed, I look at the Archon list and sometimes I'm playing. I was like, oh, this is what it does. You know, like you're going through turns just saying, oh, okay, I under, you know, I play a game or two. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I understand now. Whereas I don't really get that feeling with MM, Coda, or Worlds Collide. There are really high SAS Worlds Collide decks that function really oddly that feel that way. Clark, the mechanically calculating that I played for the Archon's Corner Firesaw Frenzy uh, League, that was one of those decks. And that actually played very similarly to Judge, just in a really odd way. For the most part, I find that and consistency and ease of playing is is, a, is also a strength in adaptive because you know exactly what the deck's going to do every single time. I really do like the slightly trickier and more nuanced gameplay that Dark Tidings brings to adaptive. That resonates with me really well. I think Worlds Collide and Coda and, and MM, I think it's a lot easier to, and I guess my opinion, maybe, maybe yours as well, but it, uh, from what you're saying, but a lot easier to look at an Archon card and be like, yeah, this is this is pretty good, or I can see what it's doing. Like, yeah, there's three tributes and a six temper or Imperial Scutum in exile. Like, okay, that's 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 our that's what we're doing, <laughs> right? The big heavy hitters kind of jump jump out at you off of the Archon card, or you're like, yeah, there's three Kirby's, a bunch of actions, and a runaway board state that's potential um, that I'm going to get to from from all of this efficiency. Whereas for AOA and DT, um, it's a lot harder to look at the deck list and say, one, is this is this good? But two, kind of as you're saying, like, what is it even trying to do? Like, what's what's the game plan? Um, yeah, not, how, not does win games? Sure. how does it win games? <laughs> well, maybe that's what the DT detractors say <laughs> about not being very well, good Well, maybe, set. but the problem is they haven't spent the time with the decks to really figure them out. Oh, this, so this is an interesting, interesting point. I would argue that the de facto or default best Archon or easiest to find good Archon deck type out there is Crush. I think if, yep. you're, if you're like, you don't know what else to do, just bring something with Crush. MM produces them pretty well, right? I'm just going to yep. keep blowing up the board and jamming pips. Like I feel like DT has a tough time matching up against that with, with the decks that are in the category of like, is this good or not? So I think you can find a lot of decks that are like, yeah, I kind of need to just put two or three creatures on the board and then do a thing. But if your board keeps getting imploded maybe that's tricky it's sort of mm's a mm's a tricky topic on its matchup into dt because it does suffer the problem of it because dt as i'm sure everyone listening has experienced can struggle with creature control and mm has two main archetypes in it number one is crush where they're just as you said blowing up the board generating amber however they're doing that or they are flooding the board repeatedly both those axes can be a little bit problematic for DT. I think DT has some interesting ways of doing it with it, like Mooklings and Doors Up to Heaven, Bring Low. I think there are, and there's no Amber, there's no Amber dumps in Dark Tidings, which is which is sucks. A Ludo and Soaring would have gone a long way. Yep, yep. But totally. I think there are tools to deal with that. And then there's there's a lot of DT rush where they're happy to get their they're happy to get their creatures back and discard for like Witch of the Dawn stuff or. They don't have like a reminders esque card, but you know they're generally happy to get their creatures and discover it's Brens from the shadows or or whatever. I know Quickdraw would would probably right now tell us about Anakim, which is a very very spicy DT rush deck that features probably one of the better Ritual of Life that I've ever seen. But it's it's sort of a poster child for that like 
yeah, toss it in the bin. I don't care. I'm going to get that Bren back with Ritual of Life or that Key Frog back and keep cycling through for value. And actually, the Kagi uh, finals game featured a deck with double Evil Witch of the Dawn and the Hing's Gross. And we saw some some nonsense with, with that go down at one point, too. Some gross plays. Some gross plays. <laughs> evil. Evil with that evil Chelonia, too. Um, I also have to have to pinch hit for, for Quick Trot here and, and plug one of his NKFL decks that's been doing doing well this season featuring Evil Witch of the Dawn, which is super cool. I, I totally I totally agree with what you're saying there. And I want to also go back to what you were what you kind of mentioned before about but the board control in DT decks generally. And I think this kind of plays into your larger point too, which is, you know, it's not like I can look at the board control suite of even even Bobeth, right? Bobeth? The Bob? Bobeth, yeah. I like to Bob it's Bob F. <laughs> Bob F. I like it. <laughs> but you you see the number and you're like 15, you're like, all right, cool. Boards ain't Boards ain't no thing, but you're like, well, Maelstrom, am I playing that every time? Selective preservation, like I'm going to have to do some work to maximize. Abandoned ship's awesome. And then we start yeah. talking about things like dry the river and bubbles. So I think some people would look at this and be like, you know, there are things that are situational. I don't love it. And that's kind of where they stop. But I think, especially in the lens of adaptive, you can you can look at this suite and say, no, there's a lot of room to maximize your value by by leaning into them strategically throughout the game. And not just taking each card as a as a one turn kind of deal. One of the things I look for in adaptive decks is decks that you really have to manage the resources of. Where you know mm-hmm. maybe it has one big creature control card, and if you use that in the wrong time, it's a big irreversible decision point that might cost them the game. Giving your letting your opponent make mis- make mistakes is one of the hallmarks of a good adaptive decks. Reminded of um, of lonely. Cadell of the Forest, which is not really relevant to the conversation other than that there's really just static charge and selective preservation for its board control. Everything else is kind of kind of uh, just for show. Um, but when I'm playing this deck, it's not like, oh, here's the selective preservation turn. I'm going to reset the board. Lots of turns leading up to that. I'm thinking about, you know, what's yeah. the what are the different powers that are represented? And even infighting, infighting is a great example too, right? It's not like a, now I have my infighting and, and like things are good. You're thinking about infighting pretty much constantly <laughs> as as yeah. you fight and play creatures. Yeah, and that you know that's that's a boon also because I mean like I I judge who I mentioned already mentioned but it it's because I play that deck so much and it has infighting. I am constantly in my head playing around infighting when I'm playing out boards, regardless of whatever deck I'm playing. The two is always going to the left of the three, and that's just like you know <laughs> how my mind is now wired. But no, it's it is something where it's almost like it's it's a little bit like playing with a coward's end, where just the fact that it exists and it can come out at any time creates a lot of existential pressure on both players to make sure you're trying to manage your battle line damage and all that kind of stuff on everything to make sure that you know it's as one sided as possible. Definitely potential to break the symmetry if you're really thinking into it or thinking about it. I have a I guess in the same vein. A DT deck that I brought to the Keyforge Premier League, which met an untimely end, unfortunately. Yes, that was a. It, I think it had probably it's one of its worst matchups in the whole league. Yeah, but this this deck is just a beautiful specimen of DT pips on display, triple strange ordination, and twenty three pips in total, including those met up against the Infernished Recursion Engine of Doom. And that was that was kind of what we wanted to avoid. But and I I believe I believe I know you have affectionately referred to this as a you know sort of a 
smaller version of Combo Greaves, which is one of your you know signature and, and favorite decks as well. Totally, and a deck that I consider you know among the best ones that I that I have. Uh, so like, is no, I don't say it lightly that. That these two could be, I could be doppelgangers, and that their stats are mirrored. I look at the seventy-four number, uh, SAS number that Q Westfall, the seasonal gully, the DT deck in question, is given, and I think yeah, it, it definitely punches higher higher than that, and often, very very often, gets a ton of value out of the Grand Melees for two reasons. One, because as the player playing Grand Melee, you have a lot more control than you'd think to orchestrate kind of one sided one sided play from them. And it's just not a thing that a lot of people play around, right? Especially if there's infighting there. Folks will see infighting and at this point are a little bit wary of setting up, you know, one-sided infighting plays. But that in combination with something like Grand Melee kind of it's it's tough to it's tough to do both. And and if you're the one playing them, you have you have obviously the control of when it happens. But uh, if you're not, it can really lead you up to these being uh, very one-sided effects. Absolutely. And this is a DT was a set that I, I don't think Tactical Officer Moon is in DT, no. but this was if they if they were to print Tactical Officer Moon in any set, it would be this one for all the battle line, you know, matters stuff that is in this set. There are a few there are a few reprints that would have been really cool. Officer Moon would have been great, uh, like Thorium Plasmate. I don't think Thorium Plasmate got a reprint in DT, right? It did not. No. I feel like with Thorium Plasmate, I either want it in Dark Tidings. Or I want it to be able to hit my own creatures and move them around. <laughs> yeah, like, well, the problem—I mean, the problem—I mean, this is—it goes back to the Seek problem in Dark Tidings. But if you want Dark Tidings and Logos, you're basically it's Astral, Seaborg, or Final Analysis. I guess think twice is your best. Is your best brain option. eater. Yeah. yeah, yeah, brain eater fights, and Final Analysis another another very fiddly, or very I don't know finicky board wipe option, which presents a lot of questions and and room to misplay misplay into yeah. around. <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, I mean it's uh I don't actually I mean personally I know it's considered a board wipe. I don't I don't consider final analysis a board wipe. I consider it a combo piece, but combo enabler. I have one deck where I look at final analysis as a board wipe, but generally I'm with you. And maybe that's not fair because in that deck there's also phase shift punctuated equilibrium. <laughs> so maybe that's more combo. I don't know. <laughs> okay, well I yeah, I mean I I maybe not though. I mean you're 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 taking advantage of some synergies that is there, but uh, but yeah, definitely definitely fewer just uh, cut and dry board wipes. So I can see that I can see that being a thing that leaves some folks I don't know less less enthused. But I, especially in the in lens of adaptive, I really like that it presents opportunity for you know familiarity with the deck and some very forward looking playing to really pay out dividends in the match over a long term. Because we talk about you know maximizing your play for a given turn but you know it's one thing to look at your hand look at the board and leave yourself with kind of most amber potential at the end right but it's another to say like no i'm going to take a turn to do some hand crafting or i'm going to take a turn to do some battle line shaping and not yep. necessarily generate lots of amber or even move a ton of cards i think dt really really rewards that type of play more so than some of the other sets yeah and i also think the efficiency in dark tidings is very different than something like what we've seen from Logos in the past, especially in MMM, where a lot of the efficiency is muddy and awkward. You stuff stuff like, A, you know, there's no autoencoder in Logos. You know, that's a common in MM. You can't just chuck things to the wind and you get a free archive out of them. You always have some very powerful ones in Phase Shift. There's Theory of Conjecture, which is wonderful. Mobius Scroll got a reprint, which is great. You know, there's, there's other things, but there's less of, I draw cards and I play more cards. And snowballing draw effects. It's a lot of 
archive and playoff top, which is slightly less, which is a little less snowball-y than what we see in something like MM, where you chain draws all the time. Dropping auto encoder, Cronus, and eclectic deck getting downgraded to effectively lose a pip. I don't, I don't know yeah. how often the the wormhole side of theory or conjecture gets played when you're desperate. When you're desperate, or when you're building up to an honor skesis. Yep, there, there are there are reasons to do it. There are certainly reasons to do it. Yeah, they they did. I think they do tend to fall into the like. <laughs> please answer be yeah, live on top of my deck <laughs> yeah that's usually usually what it ends up being well it having the problem is that, like it's not having a pip there's no reason to play off top right i mean even if it's a money archive tucking two things away for the potential of you know potential later is always going to be greater unless mm-hmm. you unless like you're really digging for an out definitely if toward building towards an honor skesis or for a hail mary play but i i feel like it's very very rare that i'm just playing theory or conjecture and saying, yeah, give me the top card. It's one of those like modals, but not really. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No, it is. It's it's very much like that. So we've got Bobeth and Bobeth, uh, Bobeth. I keep saying Bobeth. Yeah, it's not, not like not like the T. Not like the Boba T. Yeah. Or the not. or the Boba Fett. Boba, more like Boba Fett. That's right. Yeah. So this has been this has been your go-to adaptive and does feature Dry the River. So Dry the River again prominently listed among your creature control in here. Uh, you've got four tide manipulators. The Kakoa less less reliable, maybe. And it's not necessarily it's not necessarily less reliable, but with how the deck operates, it, you want it to live usually. You're really kind of like valuing the are you valuing the the taunt on it. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, which is also, I mean, because of because of Dry the River, that if that Dry the River is out, Kakoa is more likely to live. So it's given a little bit of you know effective power there and protection to some of the important creatures. So do you think of Bobbeth as a Dry the River deck, or is this more of a deck that has Dry the River in it? So Bobbeth is usually a Dry the River deck. Okay. You know, it's it doesn't have a ton of speed itself. I actually don't know if it has any speed. I, I have to look at it. Mean, <laughs> does it have any F? It has 0.5 F coming off of... Okay, yeah, so it's got 1.9 from the CXO Tabor, minus 2 from the Maelstrom, minus 0.25 from the Strange Ordination. And yeah, I mean, you're not necessarily... You're not necessarily using up taking chains to pay the players during generation. Oh, so the the maelstrom is it typically a play? The maelstrom is very dependent. Very dependent. Okay. Because not only does it give you, because maelstrom's a card where not only am I giving myself two chains, depending on what my board looks like, I am time walking myself and chaining myself, so it better be worth it. Now, Bobbeth does have 14 pips, so it's not it's not necessarily lacking there in pips. But the large amount of its pressure that it generates is from its board. How it's going to be winning the game is through its board. Not, not exactly through playing its its actions or going through that. It, it will be using its board. And, and time walking yourself with the Maelstrom, truly, I've lost games to it. Where if you use the Maelstrom and it isn't high enough value, you will, you're just going to lose the game. So it's very often a discard or, you know, maybe you hold it. It, it sort of depends on how much creature control they have in their, in their deck, too. You know, if they're a deck, if they're a deck where they're looking to, you know, if I think they're gonna savage clash soon or gateway and then play a bunch of stuff, then maybe Maelstrom's a hold. Generally, it's a discard. And I love how I love how Maelstrom is sneakily a card that really rewards you for handcrafting, right? Like when you have to play Maelstrom or you get Maelstrom played against you, it's an awful lot, you know, much nicer to have a hand that's five, six cards of the same house. And, and lets you kind of get through a glut of maybe creatures on the top than, uh, 
than having to work through a two, two, two in that moment. If you were kind of leveraging your board, that was, that was somewhat muddy. Which is something where, you know, Maelstrom with, with, um, you know, bubbles and all the sort of put things back to the top of the deck. I actually had, there was a match against Ashitaka in season four or five, where I think I ended up bouncing. I bounced a director of ZYX three, three turns in a row. <laughs> much much to their own chagrin but that was uh i think i i think i lost that match anyways but that was quite enjoyable to keep bouncing that director of zoax right back to the top of the deck no matter no matter what they played next i must have been playing uh against boss boss eric starter uh, eric stotter yes i i think it's i think i was playing against eric stotter which has to be a vanity name right they got into the algorithm I think this is this is maybe some some old MTG trivia, but there is a an, an Eric Stotter in MTG lore. Maybe you're familiar, maybe not. But I think I'm not. I think it came from a reference to one of the original designers who had a, da- a daughter and was named Eric, and the card was named after Eric Stotter. So, <laughs> so I see. Fun I'm not sure not sure how Eric Stotter made it into the naming algorithm for Keyforge, but I wouldn't be surprised if uh, it was a nudge from E.O. Garfield uh, for that one. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised with that either. There we go. So you learned you learned some trivia. Some trivia, some trivia, and the uh, the overlay overlay between Keyforge's roots and MTG's MTG's roots uh, maybe lends for some interesting ones. I feel like there are some sneaky sneaky links between the two games. You know, there's the, the obvious one they're both designed by Richard Garfield, but I think they've they've snuck some some kind of fun links in there too, which I would bet Eric's daughter is a. Uh, being in the algorithm is one of those, but maybe not. But yeah, I think um, for Bobbeth, it's uh, it has a lot of cool cool uh, pieces with like the the Sixo Tabor and the Triska with the Unity or Discord. Those put it, those can put in a ton of work. Bobbeth is specifically per, yeah specifically shines against non DT decks as a lot of DT DT decks too, but it's not really a, a tide war. Triska and Tabor together can create some really funky turns, like with a flash freeze. Um, and a lot of the, the a lot of the creature control in Bobbeth is coming from bounce and exhaustion, and you know the Echo Pearl has to put in a lot of work. Um, so like timing your call to void properly to get to you know really make up for that one lost amber. And there's a lot of just really finicky things in here. The Yuri and the Circumspect with Larry the Lake, as well as a Shield you later, and then a Teresa, as well as a Shifting Battlefield to make sure it has Star Alliance and Unfathomable Neighbors. Um, that Urian can very, 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 very quickly take over a game. Ooh, that's that's a cool interaction I hadn't really thought about. But you have the shifting battlefield, which the Teresa is awesome with that, right? Sile it up next to next to whatever house, and you've also got the Triska that you can that you can move over to a flank and then plop yep. down plop down your Urian nice and ready, right? So exactly. super cool. Or or you know move some taunts around. So yeah, really really cool, really cool. This is like. Uh, uh, like what what thorium plasmate could have been i don't know but as a boon <laughs> but also just so exemplary of like the amount of value that is ava- is there to be eked out of some of the smaller effects and i think you know you look at shifting battlefield uh, it looks like you're like okay it's kind of unassuming maybe i get a pip maybe i capture three at most but there's just a whole lot you can do with it in a set in this set in particular, where the order of your battlefield just really matters a lot. Your battle line really matters a lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. And Teresa is really a star player. It obviously has a selective preservation, which you know has some manipulation. It's got a Hadrell's Wall that you can help manipulate power with. It's got an Officer's Blaster. No, that's pretty much it. But there are some things to 
you know, manipulate the powers and really try and maximize your selective preservations. Other than that, you know, the the dry the river really picks in a, picks up a lot of the slack that the amber control lacks in. It does play out as a amber control card. I have a dry the river deck picked out as well. The complex haven mayor, which comes in right around the same sass as Bobeth at 67. This actually has two copies of Dry the River, so you're you're very often seeing it. I jam this twice twice as nice. Uh twice the, nice when they're on the, the once they're on the board, it's not an extra dry river. It's just just the same <laughs> old dry river. It's a slightly drier river. <laughs> slightly drier river. You need you need to pay 3.2 chains to raise the tide and reap at that point. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I will play this deck and the competitive QNTCO, and it does it does very well against decks from uh, any strength that want to use their board. You know, yeah. okay, if, if you don't care about your board and you're just playing pips, like you know, it's going to be a tough one for me. That's that's fine. Uh, you know, every deck's going to have some good matchups and some bad matchups, uh, especially if you're if you're talking ones that are in the, in the sixty-seven range. Like, you know, having a bad matchup is excusable. I played decks, you know, in the nineties and just said, yeah. You're looking to to utilize the board. It's just not happening. Uh, you're either you either buried in chains, or my very situational seeming board control can get a lot of work in, and the dry river plays a big part of that, especially when combined with things like yeah techno babble uh, or my own key cheating and uh, an Ulthbert device, which is really spicy in there. Yeah, and I think there's a lot there's a lot to be said about cards that inflict chains in adapt in adaptive, not only for because understanding how a deck operates when chained they do operate very differently right operating on a five card hand or a four card hand is a very different deck than operating on a seven card hand or six card hand having things that mess with that and then also those become considerations once you get to chain bidding a it's you know it's hard math to do but it's it can really impact how how the third game and adaptive will play out because you know binding irons is the same thing one of the things i used to like to say and it's still true in an adaptive match, there's sort of three decks involved. There's my deck, there's your deck, and then there's the deck with chains. And in a lot of ways, that can that can play like a completely different deck if you're in a scenario where, especially with those, you're in a scenario where there are a lot of chains awarded, it can really be a big benefit to knowing that deck. Absolutely. There was one match I had where, I mean, it was overvalued, but I think there was there was quite a few chains on Baba that I ended up taking it with, and that did win that game did win the game i think it was i think it was down to a four card hand size like i said it was probably misevaluated on both players but it was down <laughs> to a four card hand size and it won that game because it you know well basically drew a star alliance and they didn't have they didn't have an answer for it right away you know decks look very very different on smaller or larger hand sizes doubly so if you are playing a deck that interacts with the tide and, and chains are a resource that you have to manage during the match right mm-hmm. and that doesn't necessarily mean i mean that can extend to decks that play against uh, a DT deck, right? We saw in the Kagi finals, quick draw in game three, taking taking the chain, taking chains to raise the tide while playing an AOA deck just to just to force their opponent to spend chains, you know, realizing that they're that their kind of natural tide takers have been used up, you know, saying, oh, okay, I have an advantage currently on the board. You're gonna need to take chains to to maximize your cards. And, and kind of press press that way. It's a really interesting kind of resource, and people have an aversion to chains. And I think that's one of the things that gives folks a hang up 
on adaptive generally. I'm curious too what you think. I definitely appreciate the argument that uh, high chain counts, especially from a bid, can lead to maybe a swing in your game. But I don't mind low chain counts, especially you know, in like even in like the five to eight range can still be lead to some very lead to some games or leave leave decks in a very consistent state. I'm someone who is pretty liberal with chains, and I think especially like you know, if you go to like seven. If you go to seven, if you go to seven chains or eight chains, is two cards really gonna make a break? A game it could, but the chains are there and do provide some form of leveling. Where if we're just assuming that every card is coda and they're all just counting pips, you know, and then each chain is worth is one less card or two less cards or whatever, then each chain is worth an amber in that case. And if a deck is a key behind, six chains should equalize that, where it should be close race in the end. If every card is a do nothing with a pip. Then just mathematically, they'll be even in the end if 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 one if one deck is, is six amber behind. Uh, Keyforge is in a game of just pips and just playing cards that do nothing, which can introduce some of the swinginess. And some of the swinginess really comes, I've found, with decks that are board heavy. Board heavy decks will feel a lot swingier than action action based decks with with chain amounts on them. Or that they are impacted by chains even more, or can be. I guess can be is where you get the swinginess, right? Can be, yeah. Because it's it's sort of the it's also one of the pro. Uh, it's a it's a feature, maybe a bug with Keyforge, which is clumping. You know, hand shaping is great, but if you naturally open a six card of one house hand and turn one, every turn thereafter is going to be more efficient. Sure. Right. The job of handcrafting half that house is gone. So now the percentage deck makeup of your deck, every other card you see later, is getting you closer and closer to a two card two house deck. Which is just, you know, it's the nature of Keyforge and can lead to a lot of high rolls and chains sort of bring clumping. For board decks, the clumping with chains is slightly more noticeable because if you want a board deck, you're trying to establish a board and use one house or two houses repeatedly to gain advantage. It's a lot harder to generate full boards, full of creatures when you're only playing two, three of them a turn and, you know, subsequently they're dealt with and whatever, as opposed to maybe playing three or four if you're handcrafting well. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way before but that's a really really interesting kind of lens like like it's not just the initial six card hand and you play out six cards and you're like yeah this is the best i got a six card hand but now also my deck is just better than yours because it's streamlined for the rest of the game if, if someone opens a six card of one house hand they will statistically for the rest of the game have better draws than you they'll just be playing bigger turns because that's that's the percentage makeup of the deck and i'm trying to think if there's any kind of balancing mechanism like you're then incentivized to go back into the the six card hand house and sure like maybe you drew one or two more so you play out those and, and now your your deck is even more streamlined but until you i don't, I don't have a fully formed uh, point in favor of, of natural balancing but tis this is keyforge you know what are you gonna do <laughs> yeah i think the, the game naturally balances itself too right Cause the a lot of the cards are going to be action cards if they're creature cards they're going to be there's lots of ways to blow up creatures in keyforge it is going to increase your chance of having larger turns. It's also one of those things where most decks, most decks, if they have like highest of high rolls, are probably going to win the game unless they're majorly outclassed. If it's if it's a competent deck, if it's a, if it's a deck that's competent and competitive, for the most part, generally speaking, it should win games at high rolls in. That's pretty true. I mean, I think, and this kind of gets at like, oh, are there good adaptive decks or are there bad adaptive, and are there bad adaptive decks? But I think, yeah, a lot of your like, your stronger Archon tier decks, if you look at the their power curve distribution, if you will, like there's some overlap and there's there's room for like a high roll to beat a medium roll or a low roll from another deck for sure. Hundred percent. Most seventies, most seventies, and a lot of high sixties 
depending on a matchup too. Oftentimes, like the lower, like the slightly lower SAS decks are more matchup dependent, mm-hmm. so that can be a factor too. But generally, if a deck high rolls, it's going to be generating a fair amount of advantage. You know, hats off to the designers of Keyforge because most, you know, most Keyforge decks are very, are very competent. It's kind of uh, amazing when you, when you when you kind of step back and think about it, right? Because you're like, I don't want to assume too much, but you know, the algorithm was kind of let loose. Let's let's say let loose with some with some with some fine tuning, but there was playtesting, but there wasn't like, hey, we're gonna get the best players around to sit down and like imagine what the the world championship meta looks like and determine whether or not it's balanced. You know, we're, okay, we're gonna do some work and try and balance for for power level and make sure things are fun, but we're not going to like go deep, generate a million decks and look at the kind of outliers in the power curve spectrum and, and see how they, they smash up against one another. You know, that, that sort of like power level testing and balancing, I'd be surprised if it was, was really happening. Um, but here we are playing leagues with, with a lot of the strongest folks around. And it's not like there's like, oh, that's the absolute best deck. You know, we have the highest rated decks. We have decks that are known and very strong there are new decks winning large events with lots of really good decks in them all the time which is really cool absolutely was it with the budget episode with with orion which was last week one of them i know you were talking about and quick had brought up the point where if you if you ask a, if you take if you ask like all the you know every single player in the kfpl which what what decks in keyforge are the best decks mm-hmm. you're going to get a wide array of answers and there's going to be some you know there's going to be some recurring themes there's going to be some you know some popular names that are in there, but there's there's not going to be one answer because Keyforge is a game that is fairly you know well realized. Totally. Uh, so so hats off to them. I love it. Yeah. So any other any other kind of any big points you want to hit? Make us dry, dry the river specifically, or or DT and adaptive uh, more broadly. Specifically on adaptive is that mm-hmm. I think when you're looking at selecting you know adaptive decks, you know people ask the question, you know what should I bring to adaptive? People always say the answer, oh, I like decks that are trickier or whatever. But I mean, the, the big thing really for adaptive is familiarity and knowing deck matchup. One thing that's nice about DT in an adaptive lens is that you generally already know how a deck operates under chains because the tide where the, the certain things also welcome in Ketzer. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> DT best set. Hopefully we can get some of that in the in the chat. As uh, Not only am I on the Sloppy Lab Work podcast, <laughs> Ketzer, I'm also specifically talking about Dark Tidings and Adaptive. Oh, yeah. Welcome in, Ketzer. We came to the right place. Because <laughs> when you get to game three and it comes down to chain bidding and you have to say, do I want a deck that I am not familiar with against my deck either chained or unchained? is really going to come down to you understanding what your deck needs to do to win and what kind of things stop it. I can't remember who said this. It it was in one of the player interviews. It was quite a beautiful description of Kagi. I think it was in the Ashitaka Not Tonight semifinal. But they were talking about how in Adaptive, you're not playing against your own deck in Game 2 or Game 3. You're playing with your deck, where both players really are, you know, they might be playing the other person's deck, but the deck across from them is a double agent because you know exactly how the deck operates. You know how what it's trying to do, what it's trying to win, what its outs are. And throughout the whole game, you know, obviously the other person's trying to pilot to win, but it's it's helping you along the way to win because you know, you know, what cards are left, what's left in the Archon deck, like what all the strategies are. So really you're playing with your deck as well in the reversal and adaptive best of one final third game. And I think that's a I think it's it's a really nice way of looking at the format as not reversal well you know reversal has the same thing but you know it's it's not just uh someone else is playing my deck or i'm playing someone else's deck it's 
now you're playing with your deck from a different angle. Yeah, totally. And that, that kind of gets at some of the things that I really look for in choosing an adaptive deck. I'm looking for decks that have non-obvious strategic decisions or have holes that are not necessarily obvious, things that I can play to exploit. And most of my go-to adaptive decks, like, yeah, I'm totally aware of what their holes are. And in games two and three, it comes down to, like, let me get a foothold in this in this deck's hole and try and, and try and win through that as opposed to oh thank you for your deck i will make it mine and and do keyforge things now yeah exactly pretty much always how you win in adaptive matches is, is maximizing your deck's weaknesses and vice versa the opponent's trying to do the same thing totally and uh, you had mentioned before that the french players in particular we're kind of lobbying you for a logistics change. Yeah. So actually, we I know we didn't talk about this, but we'll take use a segue and also go into another. We'll have a segue train. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but in the in the Kagi server, I think before I took over, the French players from the AFK they do adaptive where the first game is reversal and then the second game is archon, which is a very interesting take on it because one of the things currently is that your opponent gets to see you play your deck first. So there's, in their version, you are much more rewarded for having a tricky deck mm-hmm. because they don't get to see you do any of the tricks first. They're entirely, you basically, you, you were giving them a deck, you're throwing them in the deep end, and you're saying, you know, swim. Mm-hmm. There's some real benefits to it. I, you know, there is a poll currently for a possible format change this, not necessarily this season, just sort of uh, testing the waters on a possible format change in the future. That is something that really, I think, highlights the a, a tricky adaptive deck as being a good adaptive deck also highlights player skill hmm. for how quickly how quickly can you pick up a deck how quickly can you unlock it how quickly can you un- understand what its game plans are how it's trying to win a game which is absolutely a big skill i personally have slight aversions to that or reservations about it not against it i have slightly reservations only because i think it's it becomes a little bit less new player friend hmm. where one of the big draws of adaptive as a you know kagi as a league is i really think it's a very open space and it's a really good place for people who don't have like or don't have Archon Solo level decks, maybe are intimidated for something like the Nordic Keyforge League or Triad or something as complicated as Moirai. You know, I, I think it really does and it really is a good format for people can still be as sweaty as they want in adaptive, but the casual and the new players and the people who maybe aren't as competitive can still take away meaningful things from a match. And still have a shot in any given match. Having it be reversal first r- removes some of the accessibility that the format has by not allowing, you know, meet the the slightly less sweaty players to be given that exposure to the other player's deck. And you know, like I mean, it, it's it's one of those things, right? I mean, I think that the idea of that format is it, it makes the it makes the rich richer. People who are already good at that are going to gain more from that archon game against someone who isn't as good as that, right? They're gonna learn their deck faster than the other person is gonna learn their deck. That also means part of that is that they're going to be better at reading that deck's game plan upon picking it up the first time. But that other player may not be able to do that at all. And I think that it has the possibility. Now, I love, I'm a very competitive player. I love competitive formats. But I think it creates more opportunities to create a feels-bad environment within a match. I was going to I was gonna say sort of a similar thing. It, it opens the door for some feel-bads. And is it fair to say, I think by playing Archon first, instead of reversal first maybe you don't allow for it to be quite as 
quite as skill testing as it could be, but big, big but there, the skill testing nature or element that gets added by playing reversal force first is maybe, let's say kind of the, the lower hanging fruit on the skill testing tree, right? It's not the, it's not the meaty, like deep, sweaty, strategic decision-making stuff that you're trying to really get at. It's just like the, well, are you new? Have you seen these before? Kind of like, can you, can you like stitch together the tactics? Because I don't yeah. think that a lot of the seasoned veterans are going to trip up on the tactics, the one turn maximizing this one turn tactics, but it's, it's more you're testing their ability to like see the game plan from, from start to finish. Yeah. And I, I think, um, like, I think if, if the goal of Kagi was to be, or sorry, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say Kagi specifically, but if the goal, if the goal of the format was to be as competitive as it possibly could be, I think reversal per first probably is the right way to go. Hmm. When designing a competitive format and you're trying to make it as competitive as possible, part of what you're trying to do is create as much skill expression as you possibly can. So the more areas in which players have to use their skill. Now, and like this exists in Archon too, right? In order for your deck to win, you have to exploit your the other uh, you ha you have to play around the other deck other deck's game plan, executing your own. Reversal first is now taking that of I know how my deck plays, so I know its weaknesses. Mm -hmm. It's sort of six to one, half dozen together. That's really well said. I mean, there was a there was a Time Shapers League a, a little while back that ran Newton, uh, which is which is like adaptive best of three, but without the final game, you allow for ties, right? So you play an uh, Arkham game and a reversal game. And in this league, there we alternated which game you played first, whether it was Archon first or Reversal first. For those rounds that were Archon first, I tried to bring decks that had, I guess, a non-obvious weakness. And then for the reversal first rounds, I brought decks that had a non-obvious strength. And so it, it kind of just turns it on its head, right? Are you playing against, are you trying to set it up so that it's kind of tricky to figure out how to pick this deck apart? Or are you trying to bring a deck where it's kind of tricky to figure out how to make this thing work? There's a deck that I brought for, was bringing for Adaptive for a while that was an Epic Quest deck. And I love Epic Quest because you look at it and you're like, is this going to work? I'm like, I don't know. But when you see somebody make it work and you're like, okay, I believe it. I can lean into it in the reversal mm -hmm. game. You know what Epic Quest does in the reversal game. It's not a question of like, okay, I've played seven Sanctum cards. You know, can I execute the turn this thing sideways and forge a key? It's, it's mm -hmm. like, should I should I believe that there's a key at the end of my efforts as I'm archiving and waiting for this thing to line up? There's a competitive argument to be made of trying to reduce hidden variables and variants in... Mm competitive environment so is giving your is giving the opponent as much information as possible for them to make informed and intelligent decisions in game two for the reversal does that introduce more competitiveness than blind information for both players possibly there's arguments to be made either way and like i said i'm open to I, i'm happy to run a poll on that as well and see how people want people take it because a you know especially I, i'm I, I, as a as a Chairman organizer, I'm happy to experiment as long as the people want to play in it. I'm not doing anything crazy here. To springboard off your point of Newton, when you were bringing, depending on whether it was reversal first or archon first, which decks you would bring, mm -hmm. you want to win game one. Yep. Right? I think that's, you don't want to be on the back foot of potentially getting 2 0 So you always want to win game one. And that's pretty much true for every, every iteration of this. On the sign up form, there is a question of a change that. I think I've been mulling over for all of my time in Adapt for playing Adaptive, and that is changing the Game 3 rules in Best of 3 for the Game 3 to follow traditional Best of 1 rules. In Best of 3, the player who loses the second game gets choice of first or second player in the third game, as you would in a normal Best of 3, and that occurs after chain bidding. In Best of 1 rules, chain bidding happens, and then it's a random 
random result. You flip the coin and see who gets first player. So one of the theories of current best of three adaptive is if you win game one, which you want to typically are incentivized to do anyways, you are then favored inherently in game three. So not only do you gain the advantage in the set because you have the chance of 2 owing and the opponent does not, you also theoretically gain an advantage in game three where after chain bidding, you can decide first or second, knowing whether or not you have the chain deck because first player gets to shed an extra chain on a mulligan. First player essentially sheds two chains. Sheds a chain for free. For free, yeah. more or less, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. they shed two chains for free. So it's you are advantaged in, ch- in terms of you know the, the effect of chains is reduced as the first turn player. And you can also saddle the second turn player with the chain deck to maximize the effect of chains on them. On on top of that, too, if there are three decks in the adaptive match in total, right, you have the advantage of being the only person who knows that third deck. You you weren't practicing my deck with chains, but um, one of my one of my kind of go to adaptive decks for a long time was a very spicy coda deck, the uh, combo grieve. And my my sole strategy playing this deck in adaptive was, all right, let's go to game three. And I've played this deck with every number of chains up to like 18. And I'm going to like win the match based on taking advantage of that knowledge. So there's so there's there's that too. And I think those three things together, the, the two points you mentioned, and also the familiarity with the deck that gets bid on uh, has this kind of upward push on the spiciness, the spiceometer of the decks that bring, which I think you can argue is is good or not. Yeah, and like I mean, I'm not someone like I'm not going to gatekeep someone's deck choice in adaptive. You know, I I don't really care if you bring a 42. Um, I don't really care if you bring like a 99. I think the most fun is to be had when the games are close, game one, games two, and game three. And I think low chains are more interesting. However, if you have like a you know a really spicy Archon solo deck that you really enjoy playing, bring to adaptive. Because at the end of the day, which is, and I know talking to Quickdraw, to their point, most of the time you're going to go to game three, especially if there's deck disparity. So really both players can sort of just skip the steps and do the chain bidding. In reality, if both players are equally skilled and both equally assess the deck, it's going to become a 50-50 anyways. The main impetus for it is slightly dissuading the incentives to bring the stronger deck. And push decks a little bit more to the middle of the pack. Mm. One of the ways I do that, and the league has always done it, is incentivizing two well wins. I actually really like that. Yeah, and I know I've gotten some complaints. I've gotten some, I have gotten complaints <laughs> um, about the two well wins being tiebreakers. <laughs> yep, yep. Because I mean, those it's the and one of the reasons that people don't like two tiebreakers is because if they bring a really good deck and they force games every time they might have a good win record but they might not win they might not get in because all their games are two ones and someone else has a 2-0 or two 2-0s so i think incentivizing 2-0 wins and saying like hey like if you're rewarded for you know it, it's it's a 2-0 win does not necessarily mean the other player was better i think if you if someone routinely gets two woes i think if there's a long if if the more two woes you accumulate i think compared to two ones i think there's something more than just variance happening sure incentivizing two woes is one way also way to push to sort of flatten the curve on what decks are brought to adaptive because i mean yeah. it's the same can be said for people who bring really terrible reversal decks and just force a game three i mean that's less fun because now you're playing a really bad deck instead of a really good deck but same idea of forcing a game three I've definitely been on both sides of that of that tiebreaker. I'm sure I've cursed it at some point. Hopefully not allowed to you. I try to be tactful about these things, but I, <laughs> I love I love this tiebreaker, not because I think it's you know a great 
necessarily the, the pinnacle of indication for player skill, but because of the effect and the incentive that it creates for the decks that you bring. I like seeing decks that are, and this is this is personal preference, but that are that are pretty good, but not outlier power level. They make for some really interesting games when you can you can have have those incentives that kind of give you a little bit of a benchmark for like what to bring. Yeah, and I mean like it's it's not a hard and fast benchmark either. Totally. You probably cursed it this past season, J- JT, because <laughs> you were you just missed the top cut by by a head to head. You and Mark H had the same, I believe. Yeah, it was now in stereo. Look at the pods now. It was now in stereo. You uh, you and Mark H that had both had three and two records in your pod. Mm-hmm. Um, now in stereo only had one two o. You had two, and Mark H had two two os. But Mark H had the had the one of had the head-to-head over you. Had more head-to-head wins within the group, I think, of of two o or something. I don't know, something like that. No, no, that. they had the they, they had beat you. Can't be true. You had lost. Can't so with with everything being the same, <laughs> that was the final tiebreaker. Nice. So uh, you just missed out, not because of two o's. Not because of two o's. I I still remember winning Kagi seven point So I'm gonna have to go back and look at my records and uh, <laughs> That's double. True. You know what? That's true. You did. You were a champion. <laughs> just don't double check. I remember the moment where I had a. I think I had a potential 2-0 that turned into a 2-1 and it was crushing. It was like a, I fought with Eunonia into a creature that had a power counter that I, I don't know, just blanked on being there. And it mm-hmm. went from like, oh, I killed your, so in my brain, I'm like, oh, I kill your dude, gain an amber, fully heal, heal my dude to like, nope, I think just died. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. <laughs> oh no. And that yeah. was, that was, that was that. That was that. Yeah, and like two O's, I think two O's and adaptive are the worst. They're the worst of times and the best of times mm-hmm. because it feels amazing to get a two O win, and it feels really bad to get an O two, which I think is the the last thing you want for anything that other people take part in is for them to not feel anything. Apathy is the biggest killer. So if people are you know getting if people are getting salty because of an O2, but they're also getting hyped because of a 2-0, you know, that's that's great. And I think that's that's very good. Just that's good good and healthy gameplay. I may have said this before, but you could apply the same idea to sets as well. Like I don't want every set to just be, have everybody be like, yeah, it was a set. It was fine. You know, I think it's great that there are folks out there who are like, ah, oh, DT's not for me. It's the worst. Like, okay, that's cool. Like you yeah. have your favorite, I'll have my favorite. And like there are some this, people this who are very vocal about <laughs> dt in a negative way well we know we know the feels on on this panel and the chat certainly i see the dt best sets uh, rolling through. <laughs> yes the uh dt dt is the best set top two at least top two at least uh, i know like, i know i know you're you're uh d- see you're you're my top two are swapped you know we can we can get along with that i dig it <laughs> i respect I, I respect it i respect respect it. mutual respect cool well uh well we are we are going long why don't we why don't we wrap it up there unless there's a quick last point uh you want to hit um yeah so there's two last points so okay. number one adaptive is a really really awesome format and i think it's it's open to everyone it's open to all players all skill levels all decks and if if you are someone who maybe is a bit who's a, who's a bit hesitant to step into a, into the competitive ring for online Keyforge, adaptive really is Kagi specific. I mean, Kagi is the only league running it right now. Kagi really is a really good home for you. And number two, DT Bessa. 
<laughs> hey, can't argue with that. Uh, with the show notes, I'll put links to where you can find the Kagi channel on the uh, Sanctimonious Time Shapers server, as well as the sign up for the next league. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll spam it all over the places. Um, I want to also let you know, folks, that this episode of the Bottom of the Beaker was uh, sponsored by Fagan's Pawn Shop. Price is so good, it's like stealing. Uh, you can find live recordings at Bottom of the Beaker Tuesdays at 9.30 Eastern right here at twitch.tv slash lobbylabwork. Find recordings of our past shows and uh, various streams over at youtube.com. Search for at slash sloppylabwork there. And for the very best content, 34, no, 57 times distilled and scraped from the bottom of the beaker. Search for that phrase in your podcatcher of choice. And, uh, and that's where it'll be. Thanks so much for joining us, Murph. This was a pleasure. Do you have any, um, any words, any parting words for the folks who are getting off at the last audio stop? Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to me for the past hour and a half. Thank you for putting <laughs> up with my, uh, my, my droning about Dark Tidings and my gushing of love for the set as a whole and adaptive as a format. Thank you so much, JT, for a wonderful, wonderful being a wonderful host, uh, having insightful questions, keeping us the you know the the wheels on the bus were shaky, the hubcaps came <laughs> off, but we stayed you know we didn't crash, we stayed on the road. So thank you so much for having me on, and I, I'm really sad uh, Quick Draw couldn't be here for it. Maybe next week you you remember the proper numbers and he'll stick he'll stick around. <laughs> but no, really, really thank you, and I I love Bottom of the Beaker. I try and catch all of your live shows. I, I watch all you know, I watch all the stuff on, on YouTube and I can't recommend you as a as a as a resource enough. You do wonderful content. You really engage the community and uh, I'm a huge fan. Awesome. Thank you much, Lee. Uh, love the kind words. And we'll catch you all folks around the lab. Stay sloppy.